welcome to the Thinking Christian Podcast, your weekly guide to solid Christian thinking on culture, science, faith, and Christian confidence, hosted by Tom Gilson. Tom is a senior editor with The Stream, stream stream.org. He runs the top-ranked Thinking Christian blog, and he's the author of several books, including the soon-to-be-released Too Good to be False, How Jesus' Incomparable Character Reveals His Reality. Welcome to the Thinking Christian Podcast. I'm Tom Gilson. It's Independence Day weekend, and I'm releasing this episode a couple days early to mark the day. It's a great time to talk about Jesus and freedom. Now, this won't be about that perennial controversy over whether America's founders were Christians or whether they meant this to be a Christian nation. I think it's clear enough that in several key ways, America is a Christian nation, whether they meant it to be or not. Our founders lived in a world steeped in Christian influence. The political philosophy they read was deeply influenced by Christian views of ethics and the nature of being human. And that influence has everything to do with the freedoms they wrote into our nation's constitution. In that sense, we are a Christian nation. So let me talk about those two things. The Christian view of what it means to be human and also Christian ethics as they play out in politics. I'll do that, and then after that, I'll address two questions that will certainly arise. I'll speak to the question of, why did it take so long? Why did it take so long for people to come up with the answer that our founders did? And why is it taking so long still to work its way through our nation's psyche? And I'll also speak to the question of why we've gotten it so wrong sometimes, including those who have claimed they were following biblical teachings, I'm speaking here mostly of the American South before the Civil War and the painful follow-up to it. But let me start with, where do our politics come from? What's the Worldview Foundation? How did America come up with understanding that all persons are created equal and having certain unalienable rights? Well, our politics has everything to do with our view of what it means to be human, Plato and Aristotle both thought humans existed in different classes and that only some of us were meant to rule. For Plato, there were slaves who were born to be slaves, merchants born to be merchants, warriors born to be warriors, and philosophers born to be kings. Now, it makes a certain kind of sense theoretically. That is, it's a philosopher's goal or end in life to be wise, to be a sage. At least that's what Plato thought. And we do want to be governed wisely, don't we? By, by, wouldn't, isn't it good to be governed by sages? Of course, there are several serious problems with his idea. One is that no one person, no one sage, could ever acquire enough wisdom to make a system and laws that would ensure every person's welfare. No philosopher lives only to acquire wisdom. That's Plato's ideal, but it takes no account of humans' desire for money, power, prestige, sex, and the other corrupting motives that we all know too well. I don't know how Plato missed that. It isn't necessarily the case that we'd all want to be ruled by sages anyway, if it meant that we had no participation in government. Humans want to have a say in their destinies. But worst of all, by far is Plato's view that some people are by nature born to be kings and others by nature are born to be slaves. 
Now, let's be clear. When Plato says, by nature, he means that a person who did something different would be violating his or her own nature and would be far less happy and fulfilled for it. A slave, then, is happiest being a slave because that's what he or she was meant to be. Well, that's obviously wrong for us today. Well, how did we get to the point where it was so obviously wrong? It wasn't through Aristotle, by the way. He was open to the idea of self-rule, but the, quote, selves who could rule included only about 10 to 15% of the population. Women, slaves, they didn't possess the, quote, logos, the, the reasoning capacity to be in that group. He, too, saw them as inferior by nature, not capable of ruling. So where did we acquire this idea that all persons are equal in worth, equal in in moral responsibility? It came from Jesus. Jesus came and established a completely new and different view of what it means to be human. That was consistent, certainly, with Old Testament thinking on creation. It was foreshadowed in the prophets, but it was Jesus who brought it to full fruition. Look at his views on race, racism. Now, he never actually directly taught on that. He just demonstrated his teachings. He was totally anti-racist. Look what he said in his first public sermon. It's in Luke's Gospel in chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And I'll let you read the part where he stands up and reads the scripture that's so messianic and so justice-oriented from Isaiah about the year of the Lord's favor. And I'll let you read the part where the people of Nazareth pretty much respond like, ah, he's one of ours. He's our guy. He's our hometown boy. But he addressed that. He picks out two examples from the Old Testament of Gentiles, the despised, the, the people against whom the Jews had a definite racist attitude. He's picked them out and said, God intends to bless them. And how did they react? They were They'd been talking about how much of a home guy he was, and they were speaking well of him before, but now they were filled with wrath. They rose up and thrust him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. They didn't use a noose, but they were going to lynch him for that. He said no to their racism. In John 4, when he speaks to the woman at the well and ministers to her, This is also one of many instances in which he elevated women's status. And look at his parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritans were half-breeds. Jews really despised them. And he made the Samaritan the hero of that parable. Look, too, at his commissions to his disciples in Matthew 28, the end of the, the last three verses of the book of Matthew, when he says, "...to make disciples of all nations." Look in Acts 1.8 when he says, You will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has given you power, first to Jerusalem and Judea, then Samaria, and all parts of the earth. Jesus was for all nations, all peoples. He was the supreme anti-racist. Jesus viewed humans as equal, not equal in our capacities, not equal in our roles even, but equal in worth, in value, in being loved by God, equal to, I would suggest, in our moral responsibility. Now, this flows naturally out of what we learn at creation, which says that we're all equally created in God's image. 
It follows, too, from Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross, which every person needs equally and in like manner in order to be forgiven of our sins and to enter into a relationship with God. Plato, Aristotle, they never viewed humans this way. Neither has any other great civilization on earth. No other civilization has viewed humans as equal, except for those that have been influenced by Jesus. It certainly doesn't flow out of today's other dominant view of humanity, that that we arose from animals by way of Darwinian evolution, by which, of course, I also include Darwinism's intellectual descendants, especially neo-Darwinian evolution. The problem with Darwinism and its descendants is that it's not so much a theory of species, but more a theory of populations. In other words, as you apply it to humans, it wouldn't be about the human species, it would be about human populations. And that's true for all organisms. Various populations of organisms compete for ascendancy, even within the same species. Evolution happens. That is, a new population breaks off and becomes the foundation, the basis for what's going to become a new species. Evolution happens when one population seriously outperforms another in their reproduction and their survival. This is a population thing, not a species thing. And for Darwin himself and for many of his scientific followers in the first 50 to 60 years, especially, the African population was way behind the Asians, and the Asians were well behind the Europeans. They were not equal. They were different populations, different places in the struggle for survival, and just not equal. Darwinian theory very specifically does not, then, imply equality among the races. It's not there in the theory. And if you really want to see someone go far with it, look at Ernst Haeckel, H-A-E-C-K-E-L. Look up his theory of the races. Darwin's theory does not get us here. Plato didn't get us here. Aristotle didn't get us here. You don't find it in Buddhism. I mean, you look at India and it's Hinduism. You've got the caste system. But Jesus teaches, and the Bible teaches, that we are equal in worth. We are equal in moral responsibility. The Apostle Paul echoes this theme, too, strongly in Galatians 3, 28, when he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave, Scythian, free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. In other words, we all have equal standing before Jesus. This is the source of Jefferson's incredible statement that all are created equal. From that one conviction flows everything else, including the principle of one man, one vote, and especially the idea that we're all endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Unalienable here means they can't be taken away from us because these rights aren't something that's been given to us. They're inherent in us. They're they're essential to who and what we are. We have these rights naturally, being humans created by God, equal with each other in, in worth and in moral responsibility. So this is where, and nowhere else, this is where that came from, expressed originally in our Declaration of Independence and later on in our Bill of Rights. Now, Jesus Also, he had a very realistic view of human nature. And and we turn to Mark and and some of what he said there 
in Mark chapter 10, verses 41 to 45. And this specifically has to do with government. It started with a, a jealousy thing among the disciples about who was going to be more important than the other. And James and John wanted to be more important. When the other ten heard it, it says in Mark 10, 41, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many." Service, humility, giving. Do you know how these ethics played out in the founding of America? Take George Washington's humility, for example. They wanted to make him king. He refused. He took the role of serving, a public servant, as Jesus had taught. He took a humble role, president, when he could have been king. Sharing power with the other branches of government when he didn't necessarily have to. And this is, this is unique. Compare that with other philosophies before and since then, other virtues. We see humility and service now as virtues. That wasn't so before Jesus. Aristotle, for example, had 13 virtues, which, by the way, is one more than you'll find listed in the Boy Scout law. Nowhere on that list do you find either humility or servanthood. Today, though, when you hear someone accepting an award even, they'll say they're humbled by it, obviously intending that to seem like a virtuous thing, a good thing. Jesus' humility certainly expressed itself in our country's earliest days and expresses itself in our Constitution. No one has total power. Jesus' ethic beyond that is bound tightly to his view of what it means to be human. So, just one more thing I want to add to it is teachings on love, as he expressed it in the Golden Rule, but also in John 13, 34 to 35, where he says, The new commandment I give you, that you love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He said in, in the Sermon on the Mount to love even your enemies. The Golden Rule is expressed in our Founding Fathers' insistence that every person have an equal opportunity to participate in government. Love for, for enemies, that's expressed, I say, in our peaceful transfers of power. Now, there's one more thing about Jesus' view of humanity that I need to bring in, too, which is his, as I said earlier, he viewed us, he knew us as being flawed. He knew what was in our hearts. He knew that we had a sin nature. It's not that we're totally awful. It's just that everything we do is tinged with our self-centeredness. Well, the founders knew this, and they knew that this comes out very badly when you give people power. Lord Acton said it very well, although later he said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. That's that sin nature working its way out, unfortunately, in us. So what do we do with that? The founders were wise. They didn't give anyone absolute power. They divided the power up. Uh, they, separation of powers and checks and balances to keep anyone from having that kind of power. This, too, is based on a Christian view of what it means to be human, that we've got this tendency 
to go bad when we get power. Our Constitution really is built on a Christian foundation. So Jesus' way was crucial to the founding of our country. Whether the founders were Christian or not, we were built upon a biblical foundation. But this raises questions. If this is what the Bible teaches, why did it take more than 1,700 years for anyone to form it into an actual nation? And above all, how could it have taken even so much longer yet for our own country to treat blacks and women as fully human, fully equal in worth and in moral responsibility? I think the key to the answer lies in the fact that the change Jesus makes is always from the inside out. He changed individuals' lives everywhere he went. Political structures, though, he left them absolutely untouched. Economic structures, the same. The same goes even for religious structures, except he did found the church, a whole new living structure meant to express his continuing presence on earth. Jesus was wise to do so. Of course he was. The problem humans have is a problem of the heart. The only lasting change is heart-level change. And the problem, it's always on the inside. It always flows from the inside, from our propensity to self-centeredness, pride, domination even over all others, and all the rest. The problem is resident there, and all our other problems flow from there. Changing societal structures won't change the heart. Won't do it. Not in a million years. Structures are not inconsequential. They have their effect. They can certainly make persons' lives better or worse. But changing our structures won't cure our ethical flaws. It has to be the other way around. It has to happen from the inside out. This, by the way, is my major concern with the Black Lives Matter movement. The organization Black Lives Matter It's trying to change human hearts forcibly from the outside in by altering human structures. That's just not how it works, as Christ has demonstrated. Meanwhile, even though it's unquestionably true that Black Lives Matter, the movement that bears that title is severely flawed and dangerous at its own heart. Its founders support socialism, abortion, and the destruction of the family structure. Just read the About page on the Black Lives Matter website. Read about the founders. They say it. It's clear enough. No movement with a flawed heart like that could possibly succeed in expressing itself in full goodness and virtue. Black Lives Matter? Yeah, no doubt about it. I support the saying, but I'm alarmed by the movement that bears that name. But I was talking about why it took so long for Christian ethics to be reflected in human structures. Well, it's because inside-out processes are slow processes. You start at the heart. The heart is hidden. No one even sees its transformation until the person displays it through his or her behavior. That's a growth process, which means even that individual's Behavior change doesn't happen instantly. They don't mature immediately. It takes time for inward change to appear in outward life. And if that's true for an individual, how much more is it true for a whole society? Society's got a lot more inertia to overcome than individuals. They've got a lot more structures and practices to overturn, including such as slavery. Societies, the whole cultures, they won't 
practice a new ethic on a structural level until someone comes along, first of all, and recognizes how they can do so on a structural level. For example, no one even heard of a democratic republic until relatively late in the Christian era. We're talking the time when America was founded. Greek democracies, by the way, were nothing like ours, as I think I've already discussed. It takes time to change, time to mature as a society, time to recognize the full implications of God's ethic for us, time to overcome self-centered ways and self-centered structures that are blocking change, time to rework systems, time to rework economies. That's why it took a long time, but time well spent in this case. Back to our nation's founding, though. Our founders were wise enough to create a great system of government. It was a great step forward. But they weren't perfect. They were very, very much on the right track. They were on the right trajectory, but they hadn't yet reached the right destination. Give them credit for being on the right road. My goodness, how great that was. No one else was ever there before them. Even though they didn't reach the final goal, they were doing a very, very good thing. But what about their biggest failure? The one most abject failure ever seen, as far as I'm concerned, in any so-called Christian society, uh, one supposedly following the Bible, and yet horrifically using, abusing fellow human beings. Of course, I'm talking about southern chattel slavery. It's an almost unbearable stain on Christian history and witness. And I read how some folks, quite a few, sad to say, I read how some folks use the Bible to justify it, and I cringe. I want to cry. I want to scream. It's awful. It's awful. But that, that doesn't mean that it contradicts anything that I've said here today. It doesn't. And here's why. First of all, the people who said the Bible justifies slavery were wrong. Simply that. The Bible doesn't justify it. It's not in the Bible. The Bible allowed slavery for the time being in New Testament days because Jesus came to start a long, slow reformation, not an instant, brittle revolution. And yet the New Testament commands masters to treat slaves as they would want to be treated themselves. That's the golden rule again. See Ephesians 5, 9, too. In the whole book of Philemon, it says to treat your slaves well. Does anybody think southern slaveholders paid the slightest attention to that? They weren't justifying their kind of slavery through the Bible, not without ignoring major, major crucial portions of Scripture. By the way, did you know this? The Bible specifically prohibits man-stealing in 1 Timothy 1.10. It says kidnapping in some versions, but it's specifically pointing toward the practice of stealing human beings for the purpose of enslaving them. This is really clear. They were not following the Bible. They used the Bible, but they used it wrongly. And it's clear. It should have been easy to see how badly they were using it. They had every opportunity to know they were abusing it, violating it, disobeying it, and they went ahead anyway, even claiming scripture was on their side, when any clear reading would show that it wasn't. How could they do that? How could they do that? 
all too easily, I'm afraid. The, the fault, as always, wasn't in God's word. It was in their hearts. It's a matter of the heart. That's why Jesus came to deal with the heart. You see, people will do what people will do, and sometimes that includes incredible evil. And, and they'll justify it by any means at hand. And for these folks, that was the Bible. Portions of it taken out of context, misinterpreted. It assuaged their guilty consciences, but only because they twisted it to that purpose. So the Bible is the foundation of the good freedoms that we have through everything good that the American founders gave us. They didn't give us every possible good. They, they were still on the road there. They were on the right track. They were heading toward the right destination. They hadn't reached it yet. They fell very far short in recognizing the full equal humanness of Africans and African Americans, slaves, in other words. But the Bible was still clearly the foundation. Uh, was America founded as a Christian nation? In this podcast, just by way of wrapping up, I've decided to step out of the usual debate over whether the founders actually were Christians. I have my view on that, by the way, but I wanted this to go in another and different direction than that. So I've shown by way of Jesus' teaching and by comparing and contrasting it with other views of humanity and other ethical systems, I've shown that our system of government has been profoundly influenced by biblical thinking right from the beginning. Whatever else you might want to say about our founders, they crafted a government built definitely, clearly, upon Christian biblical principles. It's those same Christian principles that have guided us to the freedoms we've enjoyed since then, or for some of us, to the freedoms we began to enjoy much later, and which we're still growing toward. But those are the principles that are guiding us, have guided us, and must continue to guide us. Let's not allow any movement, especially any contemporary revolution, to throw us off that track. Let's keep on pursuing our freedoms based on those same foundational principles. For the Thinking Christian Podcast, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Thinking Christian Podcast is copyright by Thomas Gilson. For more information, visit the Thinking Christian blog at thinkingchristian.net.